right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Luke 19. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one under the seat. Uh, if you're on the front row, it'll be behind you, so be creative. We'll be in Luke 19 this morning. Um, we're going to take a break from Hebrews and take a step away uh, to prepare for Easter and get ready for tomorrow. Uh, Easter is an exciting time for the church. It's kind of the big, the big show uh, where we celebrate the resurrection. Um, and then also, uh, Easter is this really weird part of the year where most of the America, at least, will go to church. Uh, so it's a great time to invite somebody. Uh, if you have a friend who, who's not churched, uh, who's burned out, uh, this might be a great way to get him in the door that you've been praying for him or her, but uh, then to finally get him here. So churches will do a lot of interesting things to try to get people to church on Easter. Uh, I don't know if you pay attention to any of this or not, um, but some churches will actually give away like lots of money. Uh, like cars and stuff, um, and so last year, like there was one church that gave away tons, like two or three cars, like real nice, like Mustangs, Camaros, um, convertible cars, and then uh, just lots of money and things like that. Um, and so we, I mean, there's lots of problems with that, but we understand it gets people in the door. So we were like, how can we do something like that at FCQ? And so we we had our eye on like a little tricycle type bike um, that we we're gonna give away next week, uh, but we'll have to make a payment plan on it. Uh, <laughs> But that's, that's the plan for, for FCQ. There's lots of problems with that. I mean, what you draw people with is what you're going to keep them with. Uh, and then also, I think it's hard to present the gospel by using a method that maybe is counter to the gospel. Um, so we'll pray and we'll invite uh, people. And, and next week will be a great service for us. Uh, this morning, what I want us to do is to um, go on a journey with Jesus and take a little walk with him. And in so doing, I hope that we will start to get comfortable with who he is and, and what he's doing uh, and be ready for Easter next week. So we'll be in Luke 19. We'll pick it up in verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Okay, let's stop there and talk. Um, this is the beginning of the story that we call the triumphal entry. And so this is the church uh, celebrates Palm Sunday about um, this event in Jesus' life. And so the Gospel of John, um, there's palm branches involved in the, the worship and the celebrations. So that's where that name comes from. Um, now, travel in the ancient world uh, was very rare. Uh, so to you and I, I mean, it's not that expensive to be on a bus or a plane or take a car ride somewhere. Um, but for ancient people back in this time period, you didn't travel very much. Uh, most people weren't rich enough to travel or didn't have the time that they could just go places. They didn't have cars, they didn't have trains, they didn't have planes. Um, all those things. Um, but there was one exception, particularly for the Jewish people, which was their pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. So Jerusalem is God's holy city. It's where the temple is. Uh, it's where Jewish belief said that God once dwelled there in Jerusalem. It was kind of the center of the world um, for the Jews, where God uh, set up his domain on earth in Jerusalem. And so as we go out through the sermon, we'll see it's also sometimes called Zion. Zion. Um, referring to the temple or to Jerusalem. And so um, the, pilgrim, the, the pilgrims, the, the Jewish people, once a year would take a journey to Jerusalem. And that's what we have happening here. Now, you would be coming from the east. So I want you to get a map kind of in your mind. You'd be coming from the east um, near the area of Galilee. And that's where most of the Jews would be coming from. That's where Jesus was coming from. And you would come up to this mount called Mount of Olives or Mount Olivet. Uh, and you would pass through these two cities, Bethany and Bethpage. And you'd go up this mount. And at this time, it would be very, very hot. Uh, there's not much rain. Uh, it's about a four-day journey. Uh, so you're going up and up and up and up. And I don't know if you ever climbed up 
Um, but it, I mean, it gets real tiring. It's real tedious, and you're just going and going and going, kind of put your mind on, on autopilot. Um, and while they made this journey every year, uh, you would be, for four days, just telling stories about the Exodus, telling stories about how God uh, saved your people from slavery, telling stories about the kings and the prophets and all the promises, telling stories about what God has done in your life. So for us, it mean, be four days of... Um, this is where I found Jesus. This is where he kind of saved me and came into my heart. And this is what he revealed to me this year. And he brought this person into my life. So they're telling me stories about who God is and what he's done for them. And they're on this four-day journey up and up and up and up. And as you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, the, the kind of sandy desert scenery is replaced by this lush green environment. Um, and as you get to the top, you, you kind of take a breath as you reach the summit. And there before you is Jerusalem. At the top of the mountain, you can see the, the entire city. You can see the temple there glistening in the sun. And, and really, from there, it's just a walk down the mount. Very easy, relaxing walk, especially if you've been going up for a long time. You like going down. You go down, cross a little valley, and then you're there in Jerusalem. And so this is the journey that Jesus is taking uh, in the Passover time with lots of other pilgrims. And what I want us to do this morning is to take this journey with him. And so if you've ever been on a road trip, uh, particularly one that takes a long time, um, you've got a lot of time to think. And if you're with other people, you've got a lot of time to talk. And you've got a lot of time to figure things out. Um, and so, I mean, really, I think the longest trip I ever take was like a 24-hour plane ride. Um, but, I mean, four days of walking with Jesus and with his disciples. What I want us to do is take this journey with them and figure out, like they were, who Jesus is and then what he's all about. Like, what was his purpose? Why were we going to Jerusalem? What was going to happen there? Um, we'll see as we, we read on that um, this story, his entry into Jerusalem, was a highly symbolic action. Um, it, it spoke of a much deeper meaning that we'll, we'll try to delve into this morning. Um, and so this works on a couple levels. One, Luke is a masterful storyteller. Uh, so Luke is my favorite gospel by far, hands down. There's not even a question about it. Uh, if you track along, when we're in the gospels, uh, it's usually Luke. I'll usually pick Luke, unless for some reason Luke doesn't tell the story that I want to talk about, and then I'll have to go to Matthew or Mark. Um, but I love Luke. He, he's such a great storyteller, my favorite gospel. Um, so you've got him working, telling the story. So you know there's some deeper meaning. There's some truths to be found in and around it. Um, but then you've got Jesus, who throughout his life is very prophetic. And the fact that what he says is often symbolic of a deeper meaning, as well as what he does. And so just like a prophet would in ancient Israel, Jesus often acts out his prophecies. His actions often speak of these deep truths that he's trying to communicate to you and I. And so what we're going to find as we take this journey with Jesus is that this entry into Jerusalem, down the mount, is really all about finding out who Jesus is, what his identity is, and then what his purpose is. And so we're on the road with Jesus, and we're walking up the mount, and we've got four days to figure out what's happening. And I think the best place to start is with the ancient hope of the Israelites. So Jesus is a Jew, and the Jesus story is a Jewish story. And as much as we want to sterilize that and bring it over into our Western world and, and boil it down to like four sterilized laws, you, you can't do that. If you tell the story of Jesus, you're telling the story of a Jewish God in a Jewish worldview in the Near East. I mean, it's an Eastern religion. It's an Eastern story. And so we're going to have to start where the Jews started, with their worldview, with their story. And then we'll work our way up this mountain with Jesus, understanding who he is and what he's doing. So the basic Jewish story, we talk about this a lot here, um, is that God chose Israel to somehow be the means of him bringing redemption to the world. 
Um, so he comes in Genesis 12 after the fall, in Genesis 3 after sin and death and evil have spiraled into creation. Creation's gone out of control. He comes in Genesis 12 to Abraham and says, I'm making a family from you, and through your family, through Israel, I'll bless the entire world. So this is what they believed, that God had chose them in response to the sin and death and evil that had invaded creation. The stuff that still plagues you and me to this day. When we're surrounded by the pressures of kind of a broken world, when we're hit with pain and hit with hurt relationships and hit with addictions and different sins that we struggle with, hit with the death of someone close to us or our own death. These are things that have come into God's good creation. And God, from way back when, has come to Abraham and said, I will choose you and your family. I will fix all of this. I will undo sin. I will undo death. So the Israelite story was that God's plan was to bring salvation to the whole world through his people, Israel. Redemption was for the whole world through his people, Israel. So if you remember, God um, saves the Israelites. He brings them out of Egypt uh, in the Exodus, which was their way of understanding salvation. They were once slaves with no hope, and now they're free. Now they're God's people. Uh, And then after the Exodus, he leads them into the promised land. He has the temple built, and he resides in the temple. Now, from right away, the Jews, we've talked about this in the last few weeks, they, they realized that this maybe wasn't the ultimate purpose of God. So they're in the promised land. God's in the temple. He's dwelling with them. But there still seems to be a lot wrong, both in the world around them and in their own world. There seems to still be some slavery there, maybe bigger and deeper than the slavery to the Egyptians. They're, they're constantly looking forward to when God will actually finally fulfill his promises. And so from day one, they're still looking forward. They're still expecting, how will God use us to bring this redemption to all of creation. And now, um, the Israelite story is, is filled with disobedience, and so they are kicked out of the land. They go into exile, and the thought here, tradition says, that at the time they went into exile, God left the temple. He geographically left the land. He left the temple. And so the, the Jews thought that they were in exile. They ended up coming back from the exile about 500 years before the time of Jesus. But if you, you read Daniel and other texts like that, they still talk like they were in an exile. So they're back in the land. But the idea is that God had not yet returned to Jerusalem, to the temple, and that he had not yet fulfilled all of his promises. He had not yet done what he promised to do in Genesis 12. And so because of this fact, uh, a whole lot of different hopes started to arise in the Jewish hearts. Uh, Hopes for what God would do in the future to fulfill his promises. To be true to what he said to Abraham and to all of creation when he said, I'm choosing you, I'm going to fix all of this. Everything that's broken will be made right. And so they started looking into the future and hoping for how God would accomplish this. And what you find is that one of the most prominent hopes was that at some point God would come back to Jerusalem. That the king of all creation would return to his people. And that at that point, when he comes back, all of his promises would be fulfilled. That that would be the time when Genesis 12 is enacted. When all the sin and brokenness and weight of creation is dealt with and is taken care of. And so you find this all throughout the Old Testament. I want to give you just a sample. And so here's what we're doing again. We're journeying up the mountain with Jesus. But we've got years of history behind us. We're even talking about some of this on the mountain. When is the king coming back? When is God returning to Jerusalem? When will all of this happen? When will these promises be fulfilled? And we've got all these scriptures behind us and in our hearts and in our minds. So flip to Psalm 90. I want to take you through just a couple of these. 
Psalm 90. I think we've got four here listed on our, our worship guides. Psalm 90, we'll pick up in verse 12. We arrange these so that we'll just read one and flip a little bit to the right, and then read another one and flip to the right. 90, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Um, I'm, I just want to give you a small glimpse of this hope that, that God would return to Jerusalem or to Zion, another word for Jerusalem. Verse 12, 90-12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So what's the prayer here? What are they calling out to God to do? Return. Come back to us. And at that point, they're expecting him to bring with him steadfast love. They're expecting him to bring forgiveness and healing and wholeness. And they're expecting him to replace the many years of evil that they've experienced with days of gladness, with days of hope, with days of love. Now flip to your right a little bit to Isaiah uh, chapter 40. You'll pass Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, we'll hit Isaiah, and we'll be in chapter 40. Isaiah 40 verse 9 is where we'll be. He says this, this is Isaiah prophesying, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Now, notice here what we talked about. Israel was chosen for the world. So here's what he's saying. Zion, Jerusalem, God's chosen people, God's chosen place. Get to the top of a mountain so you can tell the world good news. What's the good news? Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. He says, Jerusalem, your time is here. The Lord comes and with him comes redemption. With him comes salvation. With him comes a shepherd's heart. One that will take care of you and look after you. Now flip to the right just a little bit. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, we'll pick it up in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains. By now you should be know, you should know what we're looking out for. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Why? For eye to eye they all see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you wasted places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Here you see both of these themes. They're saying what? God has returned to Zion. He's coming back and with him is salvation. Not just for Jerusalem, but for all the ends of the earth. Okay, last one. Flip to your right again. Zechariah. You'll pass Jeremiah. This is a little bit harder one to find. You'll pass Ezekiel. If you hit Malachi, you're too far. Right past Haggai, Habakkuk. When we hit Zechariah, we'll be in chapter 9. 
verse 9. Now, this is a very interesting text because it's also going to play directly on our story in Luke, um, the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Again, here's what we're doing. We're going up the mountain, and we have all these ancient promises, this ancient hope behind us and in us and around us. And in verse 9, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow, bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He says what? Your king is coming to you. Zion, Jerusalem, behold, look, observe. He's coming back to you, and with him comes a rule. With him comes a kingdom from sea to sea over all of creation. And so this is just a small sampling of this hope. Some scholars who are very familiar with this time period say that this was actually the hope for the Jews. So they had all these different hopes um, that they were expecting and kind of um, thinking about, but this was the primary one, that God would return, and that at that time salvation would be enacted. Again, Genesis 12 would be fulfilled. God would undo all that's gone wrong with creation. All of his promises would become completed when he comes back to Jerusalem, when the king returns. And so they believed that at this time, at this return, it would usher in the forgiveness of sins and the defeat of evil. That when the king returns, sins would be forgiven and evil itself would be defeated. There would be a battle. In a sense, there would be the great exodus. But instead of the Egyptians being thrown into the sea, Micah would say, it's our sins. It's our enemies. It's the, the enemy, death itself, being defeated when he returns to Jerusalem. So you have all these texts in the Old Testament. You have all these stories. You have all this hope, even outside of the Old Testament. Um, so people didn't stop writing when the Old Testament was stopped. Uh, people still wrote. And so you have Jewish um, writings uh, about God, about his people. And this is a very common theme. God is coming back to Jerusalem. And at that time, all of his promises will be fulfilled. So we're on the mountain going up with Jesus, about to reach the summits. And we have this ancient hope and this ancient promises in our mind, in our hearts, playing with us. And then we start to think about the life of Jesus. So we're his disciples. We've been following him for years. And some things are starting to click in our minds. So go back to Luke, and we'll start in Luke chapter 9. As we're going up the mountain, and as we're remembering these promises, we, we start to think back on the years that we've spent with Jesus, and some things start to, to highlight to us. Some things start to stand out to us. Um, Luke 9, we'll pick up in verse 51. So again, Luke is a masterful storyteller, um, and he frames his gospel from chapter 9 all the way on up to the cross uh, with a common theme or a common goal. Uh, and we'll see this here. And it's kind of the, the interwoven theme throughout the, the second half of the book. 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So Jesus has been ministering and teaching and healing. And now he comes to a point in his ministry where he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. That is my goal. That is my end game. That is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, even if it cost him opportunities. 
So the people didn't like that he was so focused on Jerusalem, but he didn't care because that's where he was headed to. And from here on, you have this theme of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. No matter what comes his way, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Um, we'll look at another place here. Before we do, flip over to verse 31 of chapter 9. Jesus is talking about uh, what's going to happen when he suffers. Uh, and he says this in verse 31. Uh, there, he's on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. Uh, and he's just been transfigured. Uh, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his. Now my Bible says departure. I have the ESV here. If if you, my Bible sends me down, has a footnote, sends me down to the bottom. Maybe yours does too. And it says the Greek word here is actually Exodus. So on the mountain, talking about what Jesus will do, seeing his glory, and speaking of an Exodus that would happen in Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. There's hints. There's going to be some kind of Exodus happening there. Some kind of battle where God fulfills his promises for his people. And so in chapter 9, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. Flip to chapter 13. Chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 22. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's going throughout the cities. And in chapter 20, in verse 22, chapter 13, we see this again. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. His, his mind is set. He has one goal. He has one aim. He's teaching, he's journeying, he's traveling. But his eyes are fixed on Jerusalem. And already there's in Luke this anticipation building up. There's this, what is happening in Jerusalem? There's this pointing towards Jerusalem. This is where Jesus is heading throughout all of these chapters. Flip to chapter 17. We'll look in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. This is the common theme of this large section of the book of Luke. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And so we have these ancient hopes, these ancient promises. And then we're starting to connect the dots that Jesus' ministry, his whole mission, seemed to be centered around his journey to the holy city, his journey to Jerusalem. Now, before, right before we started on this journey, we were talking with Jesus. And he told us this story, and, and we didn't quite understand the story, but now it's starting to make more sense to us. Look at the story in, in chapter 19, verse 11. This is right before we started up on this journey. Jesus, he, he loves to tell things in stories, and so this is very characteristic of him. He's going to explain the journey's meaning in a story, a story that maybe we don't get right away, but as we, we travel with him, it starts to make sense to us. 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know that they had gained what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mind has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful and little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mind has made five. And he said, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, the third one. And he said, Lord, here is your mind, which I laid, kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. 
And he responds, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So Jesus tells a story right before we start the journey to Jerusalem. There's a story of a king, his servants, and some money. So the king goes away and leaves his servants with some money. And now the king is returning and wants to see what his servants have been doing. And for those who have been faithful, he has rewards. He has blessing. But for those who have not been faithful, he has judgment and he has punishment. Now, a lot of people, when they read this story, rip it out of this context here in Luke and take it to apply to the second coming of Jesus. So it's not for Jesus' disciples as much as it's for us, his church, after Easter. Um, now, there's lots of problems with that. So here's what most people say is, this story is talking about when Jesus comes back, he's going to ask his followers, you and I, what have we done? Are we being faithful? Have we done with uh, correctly with what he's given us, with the resources he's given us? Now, there's some problems with that. One is it, it doesn't make that much sense. So the disciples don't really understand much to begin with. So it wouldn't make much sense for him to now talk about his second coming, which is a concept completely foreign to them. Um, it doesn't make sense because of the context. This story is situated right before his entry into Jerusalem. It doesn't make sense because Luke doesn't really talk about the second coming. He will in Acts, but here in the story, he's focused on Jesus' life now. He's focused on what is happening right then, right now, right in front of him. Here's the last reason it doesn't make sense. If you take the parable that way, it means that when Jesus comes back for a second coming, some Christians are going to be judged and killed, which is a, a thought that you don't find elsewhere in the New Testament. You don't find that. There might be judgment, there might be refining, but, but they're not slaughtered before him for not doing as well as they were supposed to. Now, what makes most sense about this story is he tells the story of a king who's gone away and who has returned. And what are we thinking of? All these promises we had that, that God who, who left Jerusalem was coming back to Jerusalem. And what Jesus is doing here in this story, he's saying, I'm the king and I'm coming to Jerusalem. I'm the king, I'm coming to Jerusalem. Now, he redefines the kingdom here because he says it's going to bring both blessing to those who have been faithful, but also judgment to my people who haven't done what they're supposed to have done, who haven't been faithful to the task that I've given to them. So Jesus tells us this story, and we're walking up the mountain, and we're thinking of these promises. Then we start thinking of this story that he's told us, this journey that he's been on for a very long time, setting out toward Jerusalem. And then as we get to the top of the mountain, look what happens. Back in verse 30. He sends two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt's tide, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Does this sound like something we read? We're reaching the top of the mountain, and, and all of a sudden Jesus is calling for a colt. What's, what's happening here? Verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying this? And they said, The Lord is need of it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
So now we start to pick up this royal theme. Let's, let's, spread our, let's roll out the red carpet for the king as he enters into Jerusalem. As he was drawing near, down the Mount of Olives, they've reached the summit, they've seen Jerusalem, they're coming down, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They start quoting Psalm 118, a psalm about praise and victory and God's God's redemption, salvation for his people. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So now as we walk down the mountain with Jesus, he begins to act out the story and the mission and the promises that we've been given. What we find with Jesus is that he doesn't just, and this is all throughout the Gospels, but he doesn't just announce the kingdom. He doesn't just say that the kingdom is coming or say that God is fulfilling his promises. What he does is he seems to say, the kingdom's coming through me. God's fulfilling his promises through what I'm going to do. He's riding down into Jerusalem, taking on for himself the role that was laid out for God. The king is returning but he has stepped into that role of the king. We're starting to wonder if this is what it looks like when God returns to Zion. When the king comes back, does it look like this Jewish prophet coming, riding on a donkey, riding on a colt, with his disciples praising him and the Pharisees grumbling? He starts to act out the story. Now this is something that we, we pick up shadows of in little small glimpses all throughout the Gospels. So Jesus over and over again is going to kind of take on himself the role laid out for God. So he calls 12 disciples, which is a symbolic action of God who called the 12 tribes of Israel. What role is he taking in that process? The role of God. He's calling out the new community, the new people. Um, he speaks of the law and speaks of a new law, a higher law, but not as one interpreting Moses, or not as one who's received it from Moses, or from God, but as the one who's giving the law. In a real sense, the way Jesus talks, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking like some sort of new Moses. He's talking like someone who told Moses what the law originally was. He's stepping into the role of defining what the law is. He, um, over and over again, he, he's going to do these things where he takes on the role. So he offers forgiveness. And the reason why this terrified the Pharisees is not because they didn't want people to be forgiven. Maybe some of them were a little hard-hearted. But the reason was because forgiveness was, was found in Judaism. There was an option for that. But it was found at the temple. Jesus said, forgiveness is not found at the temple anymore. It's found in me. I'm overriding that whole system. I have the power to forgive. I hold that offer out. I give it out when I deem necessary. Over and over and over again, Jesus is taking on these roles laid out for God, and he's saying, right on me. This is who I am, and this is what I'm doing. And so Jesus acts out the story as he enters into Jerusalem, and there's already celebration and grumbling. The disciples, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing, they're singing Psalm 118, and then the Pharisees are grumbling. They're saying, um, tell your disciples to be quiet. What if Rome sees this and thinks we're marching against them? What if this creates a huge mess during the, the time of Passover? So we see here, I think we're giving a, a pointer into the heart of who Jesus was. What was his identity as we're walking up and down this mount with him into Jerusalem? Is he the king 
that all of creation has been waiting to return to Jerusalem, bringing salvation, redemption, wholeness, healing. And then what's our part in that? Do we celebrate? Do we rejoice? Do we lay out the cloaks for him? Or do we grumble? Do we worry? Do we second guess? Jesus, he, upon entering Jerusalem, does a couple of things. If you read the rest of the story later this week, first he sees the city, looks at it, and weeps over it. He says, if only you had known that this was the time you were being visited, and you knew that peace was offered to you, yet you rejected it. And then he does what? He goes straight to the temple. Jesus, the king, returns, goes straight to the temple. And at the temple, he cleanses the temple. One of two very closely related acts that we'll see he does here in Jerusalem. Now, this is a symbolic action again. Um, he's not actually cleansing the whole temple as if he's going to fix the system. He goes in and makes a statement. And the statement is a very royal statement that he is the king. He has authority over the temple. And he's now executing judgment over it. That Israel had not been faithful. And that he was now going to take her role in God's promises and plans for all of creation. And so he cleanses the temple. And then, just a little bit later, he finds himself in an upper room with his disciples. Having a Passover meal. But it's not like any other Passover meal. Like the, the other hundreds and thousands of Jews would have been participating in. Like the Passover meals of years and years and years and years before. As they remembered the Exodus. Remember what God did to save them. To redeem them. At this supper in the upper room. He says, I am becoming the Passover meal. This bread that we eat. It's my body. This blood. This, this, this wine, it's, it's my blood. What you have seen and tell stories about in the Exodus is now coming true in my Exodus, my great battle here in Jerusalem. The king has come back. The Exodus is about to be accomplished. I am the sacrifice. I am the Passover meal. The king has returned. We're given a, another pointer, another straight shot into the heart of how Jesus understood his identity. Or how he understood his purpose. His identity was the king returning. Doing what God had promised to do. His purpose was to fulfill all of God's promises. Was to deliver creation, his people, from not only Egypt or some sort of earthly oppressor. But from the very deepest and darkest things that enslave us. And hold us down. Sin. Death. Evil. He journeys into Jerusalem. The king riding in on a, a donkey. So, so here's, here's what Palm Sunday, here's what the triumphal entry, I think, forces us to ask ourselves. Two questions. The first is, who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he really, is he really the king of all creation? coming to Jerusalem to fight the final battle, to win the decisive victory, and to finally and fully free, save, redeem his people. So is this story for us, for you and I, is it more than just an ancient Jewish story about some guy who rode into Jerusalem like hundreds of other people during Passover? Or is this the story of God himself returning to Jerusalem and accomplishing what he had promised since the beginning? Who is he? Have we made up our mind on this? Do we have this in our hearts, in our souls? Is this something we're committed to, that we have faith in? And then the second question, will we follow? What's our response? What's our role in that story? 
you see that the thing about this journey is that even his disciples, they thought it was going to look differently than it actually did. So they were all for a, a quick overthrow with might and power. But when they figured out that it was going to involve suffering and involve seeming defeat, they, they kind of shied away and, and left him. Are we, are we following Jesus just as long as things are good for us? Or are we committed to him no matter what comes, no matter what his plans are, trusting him fully? Um, there's this theme all throughout Luke. So Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And in both of them, there's all these travel narratives. There's all these long journeys. Here in Jerusalem, Paul has lots of long journeys in Acts. And throughout it, you get this sense that Luke pictures the Christian life as a journey. As not a, a sprint and a marathon, but as four days. As two weeks. As four years of walking and traveling and telling stories. And being hungry and tired and confused and happy and singing songs and having friends all the time being formed into his people being transformed into his image Easter is next week and, and we'll be in the gospel of John looking at the resurrection what comes after the cross and how that changes the world and, and invites us into a kind of a new reality but for today what I want us to do with Luke as kind of our conversation partner if you will is make this journey. Four days. Four days, all we have to do is, is talk. Look around at what's around us. Four days of thinking about the promises. Four days of, of remembering his life, his mission, the stories that he told. Four days of starting to realize who he is, what he's doing, and then our role in that. My prayer is that we would fall in line, that we would lay out the cloaks for him, not just in a showy way, but even when life gets hard, even when the journey is difficult, that we would put all of our stock, all of our faith in him and him alone as our victory and our salvation, and that we'd find our role in that story. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. I pray that these, these things, these texts, these stories they've given us would not just be stories like we read other stories, but they would be living realities for us. We would find our hearts captivated and compelled by them. That who you are, what you did, it was not just some random accident or some story. It was the plan of God eternal to redeem and to save, to come to you and I, to come to Mike Skinner to come to First Colony Christian Church in Sugarland, Texas in 2011 and say, I have salvation for you. I have freedom for you. I have forgiveness of the sins that you've committed. I've defeated all the evil that you struggle and are weighed down with. Follow me. Follow me. Walk up the mountain. Walk down the mountain. Learn who I am. Learn what I'm doing, what I have done. Learn who you are in this story. Father, I pray that this would be something that is alive in us and moves in us. That we'd be faithful to you. That we would love you and worship you. That our hearts would be ready to, to meet and to celebrate and to be surprised by your resurrection. And the limitless opportunities that it's created for us and in us and around us. We love you and we need you. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.